This is the Sharp End Podcast, a podcast aimed at minimizing future outdoor accidents by way of storytelling. Real people sharing real stories. If you value the Sharp End Podcast, please show your support by becoming a Patreon member. Head to patreon.com slash the Sharp End Podcast. There are multiple levels you can choose from and you can do a one-time or monthly donation. I wouldn't be able to continue to produce this show without support from my listeners. This is a really awesome platform that allows you to support projects that you believe in. I am one person creating the show. I literally am the Sharp End Podcast. I have no team, no crew editors or makeup artists or fact checkers. It's just me. And I give my personal and free time to produce this show for the sole purpose of minimizing future outdoor accidents. I keep ads to a minimum. I keep my shows short and sweet. I put a lot of love, effort, tears, time, and money into giving guests a platform to share their story and a safe, judgment-free zone so we can all learn from their incident. Please show your support today by becoming a Patreon member. It's almost been one year since I completely severed my ACL while backcountry snowboarding outside of Valdez, Alaska. My ski partner was well below me and out of sight when I heard it snap. I had my Rocky Talkie radio clipped with a shoulder strap on my pack. I held the transceive button and radio down. I injured my knee. I partnered with Rocky Talkie for a reason. These radios are lightweight, durable, and they work in the extreme cold. They have impressive battery life and solid range. I use mine on every single backcountry adventure from rock climbing, hiking, backcountry skiing, and snow machining, even on road trips. Use code SHARPEND to get 10% off these radios at rockytalkie.com. Hey, SharpEnd fans, this is Evan Phillips, host at The Fernline, a podcast about the lives of mountain climbers. Each Fernline episode weaves taped interviews, thoughtful narration, and original music. These are stories that transport listeners across the human side of mountain exploration. When you finish today's Sharp End episode, I encourage you to check out The Fernline. You can find the show online at thefernline.com or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is also supported by the American Alpine Club. This is a really special episode. I was in Akiak, Alaska, which is a small village on the southern tip of Kodiak Island on a remote work trip a couple months back in January. My buddy Cody shared a must-read audiobook with me titled Buried by a man named Ken Wiley. I listened to that audiobook intently for days. A couple weeks after I got home from that job, Ken Wiley actually reached out to me to be on the show. I couldn't believe it. Unfortunately, there is a small gremlin attached to whatever microphone Ken was using, and I can't edit that out because it's embedded in his audio track. So I'm really sorry about that. This episode is chocked full of really, really good learnings, so try and avoid the gremlins buried in his microphone. And enjoy. I'm Ken Wiley, and for my entire career, I've worked as an outdoor professional, and that has included being certified internationally um, with the IFMGA. I'm currently a member with the Association of, uh, or American Mountain Guides Association, the AMGA. Um, and have carry certifications in first aid and um, avalanche, um, not all, not avalanche awareness, but with the Canadian um, Avalanche Association. Um, <clears throat> and um, for 
I've been involved in the outdoor industry probably for 35 years. And that's taken me with to a career with Outward Bound. It's taken me to a couple of careers in various different universities where I've worked in their outdoor programs. Uh, now I'm sitting in Mill Bay, British Columbia, on Vancouver Island, where I, I teach risk management courses. And the, the, the tool that I use for teaching risk management is really different. Um, I call it mindfulness applications for risk adventure risk management. And I help my, um, my students and my clients uh, gain awareness into the kinds of decisions that they, they are making um, in the adventure space or in any risk environment. And um, that, that process of understanding the decisions that they're making um, as it relates to kind of even how the day is unfolding um, really help them be present and aware of uh, or give, give them a, a deeper um, awareness to what's going on inside, what's going on in, with, in the group and what's happening in the environment. So self, others, the environment, and it, it heightens people's awareness to, to um, the decision-making pro process within that framework. Right. It sounds like those workshops, that education is just uh, holding space to keep those students present and, yes. and sort of digging deeper into the why of risk in a more of a philosophical and objective way. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. You know, for example, um, I, I, one could ask oneself, am I being courageous here in, within, within the social construct of our, you know, group decision-making or am I being faint-hearted? And that's kind of one, one of the metrics. And, and, and that's an important question to ask because oftentimes uh, people don't share bits of information because it might be counter to the desires of the group. And if it's counter to the desires of the group, then, well, that mean, means that our day might change. But in order to make good, mature decisions in the risk space, we need information from all sources. And so that's, you know, that's, that's, that's the kind of thing that I'm helping my um, students and clients uh, engage with. Well, and so uh, you, you've, you're an author as yes. well, correct? And yes. uh, you wrote the book Buried. Yes. Which I just listened to on audiobook, I think, three or four weeks ago. Um, and it was a fascinating book. And, uh, you know, what you were just saying is, you know, I pictured you uh, standing on that slope with your clients uh, and your boss's clients and you having this mental uh, battle with yourself. Like, hey, I, I know that these conditions aren't ideal, but... My boss says, follow my tracks. This is the plan. Do what I say. And you were in this sort of um, hard place where you, you, you know, you wanted, you wanted the job. You wanted, you, you were, you were, I think you're working towards your ski guide cert. Uh, you had clients that were chomping at the bit, uh, but you also had clients that were, had, were tired. So you were in this place where you f knew the conditions weren't ideal, but you felt like you should, um, you know, do what your boss said. 
So, you know, that, that brought me when you were just mentioning how you teach and what you teach, that visual, that visual came to mind of, of you standing there on the slope and wondering all those things. Yeah. And, and I wrote the book because it was a catastrophic, cat, completely catastrophic event. It was, um, the day ended with seven fatalities, um, 13 people buried seven fatalities, um, six people that were dug out and a whole bunch of lives permanently changed. And, and so I'll just give you a little window to what the day was about. It was, um, it was, it was a long time ago. It was January 20th, 2003. Oh, and, oh yeah. And it's now it's January 14th, 2022. So how many years ago was that? Like 19 years. Okay. And where, and where was this? Uh, it was in the Selkirk mountains of British Columbia. So, you know, probably a 20 minute flight north of Revelstoke, um, from the Revelstoke air, uh, heliport. And it was a operation that, um, you flew in for the week and we went in there to go backcountry skiing and, <clears throat> and the, um, the object was to get powder skiing and, and riding. Uh, there were a couple of snowboarders in the group. Uh, it was, it was a, it was a, a difficult snowpack year. We had, um, early season snow and then a rain event that went to Ridgetop, um, in, on November, about a, around November 11th. So early November. And then we had, you know, all the rest of November snow and all of December snow and, and then kind of 20 days of January snow on top of this really kind of bullet hard rain crust. And so we had about two meters. Well, it ranged from 60 centimeters at Ridgetop where the wind had affected it to kind of more than two meters of snow above the rain crust. And so that was the, the feature in the snowpack that, um, that was the, the technical cause of uh, the snow sliding. And yet what, what the, in, the interface, and one could just say, well, that, that was the problem and that was the end of the story. But, um, but I actually perceive that there's generally choices that we make and within the cultural construct and within kind of the, um, within, within ourselves and within the group and within the dynamic of the leadership that in this case really led to the, the tragic outcome. Human factors. Human factors. Mm -hmm. And so um, what we were doing, you know, if you took a intro to avalanche safety course your as in canada it's the ast1 course your instructor would tell you that you would never put 21 people on one 33 degree slope when the avalanche danger rating is considerable um you would never do that and that's what we were doing and and so what's interesting is the question well how did how did how do people do that? Like how do you get there? And I would never have said I would never have perceived myself as somebody who would put themselves in that situation. And and I I got to that situation by accepting or failing to accept 
my own boundaries of you know what I knew to be safe or what I know to be safe and so kind of a a, a a series of decisions that lead down a funnel that you know have progressively limiting options as opposed to increasing options and so you know probably the first decision that i made that led to catastrophe was back that summer when i said yes to employment at the operation and inside my gut was telling me don't go work here and so I, I denied that that input from my own, you know, better judgment. And but I accepted the job. And as soon as I accepted the job, this is back in July, you know, long before there was any snow on the ground. I knew I didn't want to do it, and I was nervous about it. And I just it, it, it just wasn't a good fit. And why did you end up accepting the job? Oh, you know, kind of for typical um, economic reasons. Um, Nancy and I had just moved to Revelstoke. We built a new house. Um, we just um, we had we had a mortgage, and and you know, I, I was the um, I was the guide and living in a mountain town, and so it was it was up to me to get the work and you know start paying paying the bills in, in kind of this new situation that we had created for ourselves. Um, mm -hmm. And so rather than having the courage to wait for the right thing, uh, I, I basically just took the first job that kind of came across my plate. And yeah, I was fully certified in uh, Al Alpine. So I was a full Alpine guide and I had one certification to complete my ski guides um, ticket, and that would make me an IFMGA mountain guide. So I, I was bringing a lot of lot of experience into the situation, um, and yet this this decision in the summertime, there was yeah, it just wasn't sitting well with me, and I needed to listen to that, and and um, yeah, those. And and I don't perceive it as hindsight. I just there was there was a tension to all of it that I was just kind of letting happen, and I wasn't listening to it. And um, and and that you know kind of brings up the idea of kind of intuition versus rational thought. It was rational mind that was you know kind of pushing me forward into. Well, you know, you, you need to get a job and you need to pay your bills and you know it was all kind of rational and 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 the rational part of that was not something that supported um you know kind of a good choice in that situation. And so um we it was January twentieth. Um on January twentieth, we woke up that morning and it was uh, overcast, not snowing heavily. I, I I can't remember how much snow we had overnight. It was kind of minus four. Um, you know, kind of limited visibility it was in and out um and i didn't sleep the night before um for nervousness about you know kind of the the snowpack feature deep down in the snowpack and also um kind of how we'd been skiing the terrain was actually quite aggressive um <clears throat> and and so um we had breakfast and we skied downhill from the lodge to Karen's Creek, 
and then put our skins on. Then we started climbing up towards, we, the intention was to, to ski a, a peak called Franalp and then go over to a run called La Traviata. Um, and then we had a tea break at Tumbledown Lake. Um, La Traviata was a run on, on Tumbledown Mountain. Um, yeah, you know, I was, every time I hear that name, Tumbledown Mountain, um, it's, it's, it's a window to how nonfiction is stranger than fiction. Like if you were to put that in a fictitious tale about a, a, an avalanche tragedy, you know, as a, as a reader of a fictitious story, you'd kind of roll your eyes. Um, but that's where it happened. It happened on Tumbledown Mountain. We had a tea break at Tumbledown Lake. And I remember looking up um, at Tumbledown and just thinking, I don't want to go there. Like it was a rock-studded, rock-studded peak, you know, lots of weaknesses in the snowpack. The lower, the lower, well, lower down on our approach up the mountain, we were skiing up over substantial avalanche debris. So part of the face had slid. Um, and, um, and, and you have 21 people, you have 21 clients in this group. Yeah, we we're, you know, quote unquote, two groups, but it was my third week of work. So I was following pretty, pretty tightly, too tightly, but I was instructed to follow 50 meters behind. So really, it's kind of like one big group of 21, um, which you know, is kind of, um, well, it's not good. And that whole day, I, I, was, I felt like I was um, in a bit of a bubble. Like I wasn't engaging in conversation in a relaxed way. I was feeling really stressed and in my head. And, but really kind of isolating from what was going on. Like during our tea break, my mind was racing a mile a minute. And yet, you know, didn't really kind of engage in conversation or... Um, engage with you know my lead guide and and probably because our dynamic was that you know my suggestions or my input just wasn't really landing for him and um and so I, I i was choosing to kind of isolate myself and that's not a that's not a healthy place to be in in a risk environment i think that from a from an ethical standpoint, it's really important that we all have voice and we all have, you know, the ability to provide input. But uh, if your voice wasn't, if you weren't feeling like your voice was heard, it seems like you have two options is to, is to force your voice, but in front of clients, uh, that's pretty unprofessional. Uh, and, or it's just to sort of, uh, stay in your lane, get in line and do what you're told, which seems like the less of too uncomfortable and sort of uh, embarrassing experiences in front of clients. So that that's that's a kind of a tough spot to be in. Yeah, you know. Um, well, I, yeah, I've, I I have some really different strategies now, <laughs> um, but um, I think that. I think that I perceived that I didn't have a choice, you know, kind of like you've outlined, um, you know, to be unprofessional or to, you know, or to kind of not say anything. Um, I didn't, I didn't perceive I, I had had much of a choice, but, um, 
I think that I think that now my my decision process would be more akin now would it be more akin to yeah you know I'm I'm not participating like I just think that this is this is is not a good situation and I'm going to choose not to participate and that might have meant losing you know in that context it might have meant losing my job and, and but I do see that as professional mm-hmm. right like I mm-hmm. do see that as being you know, profoundly professional. Um, Setting boundaries. Yeah. And advocating for yourself and for your clients. Yeah. You know, I think that what happens is that we, we defer to these hierarchies, um, you know, kind of like the person with more experience gets to, you know, make the decisions and the people with less experience get to just follow. And yet it's way more complicated than that. Like we're all, we're all going to these spaces and we are all, you know, kind of betting the same chips, our lives. And, and so since we're all betting the same chips, um, it, it stands to reason that, you know, what we might have to say or, or sharing our perceptions is, is really valid. Um, and, and, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Um, yet, in sharing my perceptions and sharing how I was feeling, if, if that were the, how this, this all played out, um, we would have averted tragedy. Um, and intuition, um, intuition is kind of this really strange thing. And, and the narrative around intuition is, is one where, you know, it's changing. Like if you look back, you know, throughout history, you know, intuition was kind of, seen as well this sixth sense you know we're getting information from this unknowable place and that's how i would still define intuition um and now we're now the language around intuition is well it's connected to direct experience um well actually it would say that's more akin to unconscious competence where we kind of know what to do because we've done it a bazillion times um and we've seen a lot of conditions and we've seen a lot of things happen. That's, that's a totally different kind of um, information gathering than intuition. Um, but what happened was um, after the break, we, we, we started going up the mountain again. And, and the track, instead of going over to Front Alp, the track, um, the lead guide set track over to, to La Traviata. And I was just about sick. Wait, so what, but that wasn't the plan. So that wasn't the plan, though, was it? No, no. Okay, so it wasn't the, the plan. plan did, did he convey the change of plans during the tea break to you? No, not directly. But when he um, started, he he radioed to the office and said, "Yeah, we're going to La Traviata first. And and he started off, and he had his radio on his, you know, on his backpack shoulder strap and my backpack was off and sitting on the snow and somebody was saying something and I missed the transmission and so when he put the turn in I was I was kind of back on my heels like oh my goodness here we are here we're going and and so um, before stepping out onto the slope I remember stopping and Vern Lunsford behind me um, and all my clients behind me stopping 
and we're looking up at you know the other um, twelve people above us, or um, thirteen people above us, and um, Vern says to me. I don't like this. I don't like anything about this. I don't like the other group above us. I don't like where we are. And my response was, neither do I. Yeah, his intuition was, and, and also rational thought and personal experiences all come into play saying like, wait a minute, we're not supposed to have more than one or two yeah. people on a, on a slope. His uh, red flag went up. Your flags are going up. And, yeah, he, and he voiced it. Mm-hmm. And there were others. There were other in the, others in the upper group that were racing from one switchback corner to another and trying to minimize their exposure to the slope. And actually one of the clients raced past two or three other clients in the upper group. And then when the snow fractured, it fractured behind his ski tails. And so I think that if we had have stopped down at the lake and asked everybody like what's you know you know just just had a conversation um i think that we would be have easily been able to kind of figure out that a a better course of action for the day but we were all just following the leader and sometimes the leader isn't gifted with these these really lovely intuitive guiding moments um and so um, what I said to Vern, I said, well, I'm going to check things out and, you know, follow with three meter spacing if, if things seem okay. And I went out there and I totally intellectualized all of it. Like I, you know, kind of did a hand shear test in the top 30 centimeters and it was really great. The problem was two meters below my skis. It wasn't, you know, on the surface. It wasn't a surface instability that we were dealing with. And, um, yeah, you know, the, it's, it's, it's so obvious now, but the pressure, the pressure kind of pressing down on me was phenomenal. Um, what, what, where was that pressure coming from? It was, It was knowing this was this was a really bad situation, and and thinking that this was my development, but it was way more than that. It was way bigger than anything I'd ever felt before, um, and and there's 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 a piece to that that's that's incredibly important. Um, you know, to your listeners, like, regardless of how much experience you have, you know, we know when, 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 when we can know when things are going to be going to be really bad. Um, and, and it's really important to pay attention to that. It's super important to pay attention to that. Um, intuitions is kind of, you know, divine gift and, and, um, you know, we, it's not ever to be explained away. And yet, um, I think that there it's, it's probably worth our while to, you know, embrace a little bit of a cultural shift to recognizing intuition as 
you know, something really important and really valuable. Um, yeah. And I told Vern, follow with three meter spacing. And as soon as all my clients were exposed to the slope, the damn thing avalanched and, and it was, you know, incredibly percussive whoomp and the whole world started moving and life was never the same. It wasn't the same for Vern's family and it was really unfair because he died. Um, and, and for all the families that lost members that day, it, it changed everything. Um, and, and so, and so what, um, you know, the, the media reports that came out of the operation that I was working for were, um, nature to blame for the avalanche. Of course, there was a kind of a, a flurry of articles and, you know, things over the, the following months, but the kind of the first, you know, Calgary Herald, um, you know, um, headline was nature to blame for, for mm -hmm. the avalanche. And that is a truth. And, and so, you know, the truth is always bigger. Um, <laughs> um, it is a truth, but it's not the truth. Yeah, it's, um, not the, it's not the entire picture. And, you know, what's really yeah. fascinating to me is this, this um, you know, we as humans will claim, you know, kind of 100% autonomy when we have successes. Um, and yet when, when, there's a, when there's a profound failure, um, we don't want to accept autonomy or responsibility for that failure. Um, and neither did I, like for the first, you know, four or five years post avalanche, um, I was perfectly happy, happy, just hiding in the shadows as, oh yeah, you know, I was the assistant guide there and it was really terrible. And, and, you know, I've had some things to say, um, that were mostly kind of projection on the guy I was working for, but you know, Ashley, real healing only came when I, I decided, you know what, I, I need to own my piece of this. I need to, um, I need to kind of tease out Ken Wiley's own lessons from this. And I think that that process, um, like the whole, the whole thing was tragic and, and, you know, people lost their lives and, you know, daughters lost their fathers and, you know, families lost, you know, mothers lost their daughters and, you know, fathers lost their daughters and sons. And, you know, it was, it was it's terrible. It was just terrible. And the process of, you know, me kind of figuring out, so what role did I play in this? Um... I think that for me, that was probably the most important work of my life was to figure that out. And, and so what does that look like? Um, um, I think that one of the, 
you know, kind of the first lesson was that I was, I was denying a whole bunch of stuff going into it. I was denying kind of my own, you know, like intuitive hit, like even in the summertime or, you know, on the day of, I was denying that intuition or how I was feeling about it. Um, and, and it was important for me to recognize that in, in the future, when, when I get those feelings to pay attention to them, to accept them, to accept them as part of me and, and to accept them as, you know, kind of, you know, you know, one of the ways that I operate is that, you know, I just kind of listen and, and discern and, and pay attention to kind of the bigger picture and, um, and, and then to accept, you know, what happened, right? Like, um, yeah, you know, I think that, you know, post incident, it was really easy for me to kind of like deny that I actually had a role in this, but the acceptance of, of the role that I played, um, was critical for my own growth. And, and that growth, um, really kind of, you know, makes, makes the risk, the risks that I've taken in my adventure career worth it. Right. Like, you know, it's, it's really fascinating. You know, there's these narratives in the adventure community that, you know, what we do is worthless and, and that, you know, it, there's really, it's really selfish and there's really nothing to be gained except for, you know, maybe fitness and, and maybe a little bit about decision-making, but probably the most important thing is, is growth, like our own development, our, our maturation and, and learning to accept, you know, what happened that day and my role in it and the decisions that I made, um, and accept also that in that moment I was doing my best, um, you know, kind of given the whole structure of everything that I was engaged with, I was doing my best, um, you know, accepting all of that you know, what a, what a incredible, incredible process. Did you um, feel a weight, a weight be lifted once you finally worked through that process? Yeah. You know, I, I, um, very, very much so. And, and yeah, you know, it's interesting. These, you know, when we have powerful experiences in our lives, there is a, there is a weight to them. But how I like to describe it is if, if we're carrying something useful, like if you're on a backpack trip and you got a bunch of, bunch of useful things, the weight's easier to carry than, than if we're, if, you know, if one is carrying a whole bunch of things that aren't useful, like if somebody puts a rock in your pack, um, and, and you know, that rock is there, but you're carrying it. It's just like, it, it sucks carrying a weight that doesn't have purpose. And so the process that I went through um, to be freed of that weight. Yeah. Well, yeah. not necessarily free to the weight, but make, make some useful tools out of it. Mm -hmm. Like understanding this process of acceptance versus denial. Like that's, that's, I, you know, that's a, that's a practice that I use today is like, 
oh yeah, you know, it's probably important for me not to, you know, deny certain things in my life and, and to accept them. And also when situations are unacceptable, to accept that, ooh, I'm going to have to arise to the occasion to make it acceptable for me. Um, yeah. And so, and, you know, this process of acceptance really kind of protects value. So if I'm accepting myself and kind of how I'm showing up, like if I accept the fact, if I'm showing up for, a, you know, an event, a, a mountaineering event, and I've got a sore ankle, um, and I accept that that's something that I need to share with the people that I'm going with, um, I'm protecting my the value in myself and kind of value with, you know, that in value of that information, because that's the truth. And so then we can kind of shape our shape our experiencing accordingly based on, you know, really good information. And that's what we we I think aim to do in in the adventure space. The other um the other kind of key another key lesson is um that I drew from this this experience was understanding courage and understanding the difference between um, being showing up as faint-hearted or showing up as courageous and and in the process of writing and and you know writing buried and kind of talking to people about it and engaging with with others about kind of this experience i i now have a deeper understanding of courage and there's many facets to courage like there's intellectual courage there's social courage there's physical courage and emotional courage and moral courage and 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 i was showing up on that day that day of the avalanche as being profoundly faint-hearted um i chose to disempower myself and and courage is is not an absence of fear, like you know. I think that the icon for courage in our in our culture is a lion, but a lion doesn't have, does you know, it isn't required to be courageous. Um, the icon for courage should be a mouse, and of course, we might <laughs> your listeners might laugh at that, but but a, but a mouse actually has to go about its day, and and you know, pretty much everything everything to the mouse is a predator. Um, but it, it goes out there and it, it collects grass and does its thing and lives its life and and does In no total fear. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, but not par- but not paralyzed by fear. Yeah, you know, fear is a really interesting thing. It, fear is something that helps us pay attention. Um, it it heightens our senses, and our job is to learn to to kind of say thank you fear i'm going to take it from here um because it's it kind of wakes us up to kind of you know potential peril and then then we get to kind of navigate with grace and courage through that peril and and that's you know that's that's what i think we're endeavoring to do in in the adventure space is to to do that, you know, be courageous and and gracefully. Um, yeah, yeah, and and again, it's you know, kind of this this process of 
choosing between faint-heartedness or courage is you know kind of this ongoing practice and you know <laughs> i'll break a mug or something here at home and you know I'll, yeah and and i i see the process happening right like you know i have to kind of like so, um, Julie, um, yeah, you know, I uh, broke your favorite mug today. <laughs> and, and we bump up against that stuff all the time. And, and we're, we're asked to kind of practice courage all the time in, in large and small ways. Um, and it might be even, you know, hearing feedback about, you know, about, our, our behavior like if somebody says to me you know you should you should really um you should really you know do that a different way it'd be probably a little bit safer and especially somebody like myself who kind of works in the risk management space it would be really easy for me to kind of come up with some you know quip or as opposed to just saying humbly thank you that's way better you know there's a there's you know the book kind of highlights you know probably um um, well, it highlights eight lessons now, but another one that's probably um, of utmost importance is this idea of intuition. And intuition, um, I think that there's a there's a whole palette of of human skills, and and within our culture we. We like to categorize those human skills into, well, that's a masculine skill and that's a feminine skill. And, you know, we kind of, you know, nurturing, we throw on the feminine pile and, and, you know, I don't know, courage, we throw on the masculine pile, but they're human skills. And, and, you know, for, to be a fully functioning human being, um, I think that it's important to develop both masculine what we what we categorize as masculine and feminine skills um and intuition we could you know we categorize it as a feminine skill set but um yeah the language around intuition has changed and um intuition is this like incredible gift as i've mentioned that comes from this place that we can't understand and it's a sixth sense and 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 very much a feminine skill set um but you can't weigh it you can't measure it you can't you know and and you can't like it's important not to categorize it as thinking because it's because it's not the thinking the thinking part of ourselves it's the feeling right yeah it's it's it, it, you know, we feel it more than think it. And yet it's not an emotion. It's really different from emotions. Um, it's, you know, it might, it might trigger emotions, but uh, I don't think fundamentally it's, you know, intuition is an emotion. Well, why, why is it that intuition doesn't get much clout as, as a reason? Yeah. And, and intuition might exist beyond words right so i want you to you don't have to do this but i'm just using this as an example describe perfectly in words so that you would 
so that the person hearing can understand 100% describe exactly what an orange tastes like, right? Like things exist beyond words. Well, and my my best friend, uh, he, he's actually the one who, Josh, he, he's my biggest podcast their biggest sharp end supporter. He bought me my microphone, my first microphone when I told him about my idea. Um, he's never in his life been able to smell ever. He doesn't know what smell is. And so when I try and describe what an orange smells like or what a fire or wood burning stove smells like, how do, yeah, how do you do that? Yeah. Things are beyond words and, and intuition is beyond words. And, and so, but, it, but it's real. And so there's, there seems to be this kind of movement to usurp the de- definition. Like I would define intuition as it's, it's a perception that, that's connected to the collective consciousness. That's, you know, and that's kind of using a more of a Jungian definition. But, you know, lots of literature out there would, you know, is, is using... Um, is is connecting intuition to what I would call um, um, unconscious competence. So if we practiced a skill, like let's say that I learned to drive a a standard vehicle, when I'm when I'm learning to drive a standard vehicle, it's all a very conscious process, and then eventually I'll be able to drive a, a standard vehicle without ever thinking about it. And and the language is that well, you can now drive a, a standard vehicle intuitively. And I, I wouldn't ever say that myself because that's not an intuitive process. Um, that would be, yeah, I've gained conscious com- unconscious competence where I am, I'm, I'm fully versed in, the, in the, the, the movement skill of driving the vehicle that way, but I don't have to take up you know, valuable intellectual bandwidth to do it. Um, yeah, and... And so, and, you know, and, and you're, you're right in kind of like, what's interesting is that this friend of yours that can't smell, um, there, there are people who are not intuitive, but it doesn't mean that intuition doesn't exist. Um, and, and so intuition is a pro is a process of sensing like, okay, like I'm feeling that there's, you know, kind of an energy happening today. And it could be a really good energy, like the mountains might be inviting us to, to engage. Um, or it might be a bluebird day if things look absolutely perfect, but we've got this, you know, this information coming to us that's, that's saying today's not the day. And, and in your example and your experience um, uh, during that, you know, mass casualty avalanche incident, uh, many people, including yourself, many, many of those clients, the 21 clients in your group, yes. or those two groups and yourself all had intuition, that feeling of deep intuition that something isn't right here. I mean, you, you said one of the clients raced past two other clients just to get above that, uh, that kick turn, um, and barely made it above the crack above the fracture. Yes. And the, 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 you know, the client behind you said, man, I don't know. 
And so it just seemed like a lot of people had that same gut intuition. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 and intuition isn't fear. Like, and I think that, I think it's, you know, for, for adventurers, it's really important to understand the, the difference between the two, because so often we're trying to, um, to work through our fears in the adventure space so that we can, you know, kind of develop and become more courageous and better climbers and better skiers and better riders and, you know, better surfers or whatever we're doing in kind of the, the risk environment. Um, and so when we're, when we're afraid um, and we, we shine a light on that and we tell our friends, you know, like, this is scaring me. And then we have a conversation about how we're going to manage the risk so that, you know, I might feel better. Um, if, if it's a fear-based uh, experience, that conversation about how to manage the risk helps. Well, how do you, what do you suggest that people do? People are they're staying on a slope and you start to have an intuition that something's not right here. You know, you're, you bust out your snow science triangle and you've got your human factor, your slope, your, you know, your weather, mm-hmm. you're kind of reading all of the, the, uh, the factors, putting all the factors together, but you can't quite speak up. You're, you're shy. You feel embarrassed. You feel like you're not like you're like you're the weak link. You're holding people back. What do you, what do you suggest that people do? Um, well, go through a process of discernment. So is this a fear-based response? And if a discussion about how to manage the risk helps, then then you can you know, you can manage the risk and and you, things are probably going to be okay. But if if the conversation, if any like if the conversation does not help you, right? Like you just feel like the conversation of how how to manage the risk feels like you're being painted into a corner even more. It's it's just listen to it. Like come back another day. Um yeah. And so you know intuition isn't an emotion. Intuition isn't kind of you know what I would call kind of unconscious competence or or yeah or tacit knowledge. Um and it isn't instinct. Like instinct is kind of you know generational you know like something that we that's written on our DNA that, you know, our ancestors learned, like, you know, it's, you know, we use all these, we confuse all these, you know, language pieces around intuition, but um, intuition's a gift and, and it, and it actually takes courage to speak to our intuitive experience. Be the mouse. Be the mouse. Like enter into that conversation. It's just like, yeah, this this isn't happening for me, and um, I I need to I need to kind of play the exit card because. And I think one strategy too is just to have those conversations with your backcountry partners, even before you go out. Yes. Because if you're standing on the base of a slope and you decide that, you know, plans are going to change, uh, conditions are a little bit different out here than we thought. Let's do this instead of this, and you know maybe you don't want to do plan B that you just came up with just standing there at your, at your, you know, tea break. 
Mm-hmm. And But by then you're already both in the field. And so if one wants to do plan, stick to plan A or one wants to do plan B and you can't separate at that point. Um, so then you're standing there at your tea break and you have, you know, conflict of interest. So you can either go back by yourself and leave your partner out there by themselves, but you wouldn't want to do that. So it's, you know, sort of making this, having this conversation before you go out, Hey, what, what would you do if mm-hmm. our plans change in the field? You know, if yeah. I didn't feel comfortable getting on something or seeing down something, would you be mad at me? Would you be upset? Would you be supportive? And just seeing where your partner's at, because I'm not going out in the back country with someone that doesn't have a wilderness first responder and that somebody, you know, doesn't, doesn't support where my head and my heart are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you touch on something really important about, um, about objectives, um, you know, our language around objectives, especially especially in the winter mountain environment, like when we're kind of dealing with snow, snow is, is, is really fickle. It's a really kind of super challenging medium to work with. And it's getting more challenging with climate change. You know, we're just getting more layers in the snowpack all the time. And so our language around, you know, objective needs, you know, what we're doing for the day needs to be really more akin to we're going backcountry skiing to, today in this area, and you know, and it's really conditions dependent upon what we what we get up to. But you know, we're going to be curious. We're going to you know, we're we're going to pay attention to the avalanche danger rating, avalanche forecast. Um, we're going to do our homework. Um, we're going to collect some data. We're going to collect some data. <laughs> yeah. um, we're going to make good decisions. Um, you know, those all of those things can be really you know, we're are really concrete. Um, we're going to have a shared experience um, and we're going to be there for each other. Um, and I, you know what? Th- that's really important, right? Like, you know, one of the rare, rare questions that we answer as humans is, you know, answering the question when somebody asks us, what do you need? And to become really, really well versed at asking that question of our partners, what do you, what do you need? Because you know we're here to kind of pay attention to what your needs are. I love that. Ask your partner, what do you need? Yeah, like what kind of a day do you need, and and what do you need now? You know, just kind of you know, kind of using that as a a, a question that gets asked throughout the day. Like, what are your needs? Like, and what a what a great thing to you know, be able to answer, well, actually I need to, well, I need, you know, I need a good day of skiing and, or I need, um, I need to have a little bit of, um, something to eat because, you know, I want to manage, manage my blood sugar or, you know, whatever it is so that, but it's a beautiful question to have to answer. Those are kind of a top, top three things. Um, probably kind of, you know, on top of all of that, you know, my, my big takeaway from what I've, what I've experienced is that um, adventure is really probably the most important thing that we could engage in um, at this point in history as human beings because it's real. There's, it's, there are real situations. There's real consequence. There's, um, and... And because it's real, there's this incredible opportunity to grow as human beings. 
Um, and, you know, adventure in and of itself, you know, if, if without, you know, kind of the growth piece, I don't think has all that much value. Um, and, and as things get busier out there and as, you know, there's more pressure on kind of wild spaces, we're going to have to answer some hard questions about, you know, kind of the value of the, of this kind of adventure thing that we do. And if we can say, well, this is really important for human development, then we've got a good reason. And, and I think that that's probably one of my biggest takeaways is no matter what we experience, um, we have an opportunity to grow and, and mature and change who we are and become better. And, you know, and, and through that process of growing and maturing, we make better decisions. Um, and so we're more likely to come back from our adventures and we're more likely to come back better. So in terms of your incident, this, this incident that, yeah, caused seven fatalities that you having to deal with holding that, that weight and teasing out, you know, where, where you fit in Mm -hmm. through that experience. Um, is, is that, is that your strategy for post-crisis management is growth? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. post-incident growth. Like mm-hmm. asking ourselves the question, um, what do I do with this and how, how can I grow with it? And, and it's hard work. But, um, but if we ask ourselves that question every day that we go out into the, into the mountains or onto the rivers or then we're probably less likely to kind of get into into bad situations. Thank you so much to Ken Wiley for being vulnerable and having the courage to share his experience with us to learn from. Check out his book titled Buried. Thank you so much to Rocky Talkie and the American Alpine Club for believing in my show. Many of the guests I've had on the show have saved money on their remote rescue just by being a member of the American Alpine Club. Learn all about the member benefits on the American Alpine Club website. Visit AmericanAlpineClub.org to learn more and join today. And again, please show your support by financially backing this podcast on Patreon or PayPal. A little bit goes a long way. And as always, remember, play hard and be smart.